Have you been zombified by imitation, mimicry, cultural transmission, memes? Have you been zombified by imitation, mimicry, <laughs> cultural transmission? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager and brain enthusiast. Yeah, I love brains. I love sharing brains. And this episode is all about how we humans share our brains because we can imitate each other. Cool. So, and transmit things like the ability that we have to to share not just stuff but ideas the things that we create in our minds Ooh. yeah so who are we talking to today today we are talking to christine laguerre who is a psychology professor at ut austin huh? she studies culture cultural transmission and kids and how they imitate and all of these things. And she is also just extremely insightful about what all of this means like for us as humans. Cool. What's your favorite part of the episode? My favorite part of the episode is talking about what, what kids do and how kids imitate. Because she's seen a lot of it and has studied it in the lab. And uh, it's just fascinating to me how fundamental it is to our humanity to imitate Cool. Yeah, so let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain. Yeah, let's Christine hear. Christine Laguerre. This year, this, uh, I messed it up. I messed yeah, up well, imitation. you know what? The imitation doesn't always have perfect fidelity. Oh, good to know. Let's try it again. <laughs> <laughs> let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Christine Laguerre. Let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Christine Laguerre. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> I know it's crazy, but it's Christine Laguerre, and I'm a cognitive scientist who studies how we become human and how our cognitive system allows us to become members of highly diverse cultural groups to learn any human language, any cultural toolkit, body of knowledge. And that's really at its core what I'm most interested in is our capacity for all the different sorts and forms of culture that exist in human populations. So for you, the ability to use sort of different different languages, different norms, that ability to be different is is it for you part of what's essential about being human? Absolutely. I I think that the um, the most interesting thing about humans is their cultural nature. Human minds are for culture. 
Um, our cognition is, I think, most special among animals because of the cultural inheritance and our proclivity for learning cultural information. So rather than cultural variation as, um, or viewing cultural variation as something that obscures human universals, the fact that humans have a cognitive system that's flexible enough to learn you know, any repertoire of cultural knowledge and practices is unlike any other animals. So human culture in humans varies more between populations than in any other animal species. You know, I'm sure chimpanzees in some populations use tools a little differently than chimps in, in other populations. And some chimp populations don't use tools at all. But the, the orders of magnitude <laughs> by which our, um, our cultural practices vary is, hmm. is extraordinary and requires a tremendously sophisticated cognitive system and a lot of flexibility. So what unites us is our ability to be different. <laughs> it, it does. And our ability to learn whatever is locally relevant in the population that we're being born into. So when, when I talk to people about parenting and the goal of parenting, a lot of, of um, you know, middle-class Americans will say things like, well, the goal of parenting is to love your children, which is, of course, true. Parents love their children. I would argue that's not the goal of parenting, though. The goal of parenting is to equip your children to succeed in whatever population you anticipate them living in, mm -hmm. um, working in, having a family in the needs of uh, the requirements of populations um, in terms of the toolkits and aptitudes, they vary enormously. So the type of skills that you need to, um, to excel on a Melanesian island are pretty different than the types of skills you need to, to excel in Austin, Texas. So we're not raising culture-free offspring. Mm -hmm. We are raising Americans or... Um, the Gians, mm -hmm. uh, as that's a case where, and that's that requires a lot of kind of built-in psychological flexibility. Mm -hmm. So essentially, we have systems in our brain that are specifically set up to pick up on those particulars, mm -hmm. and then integrate that information in a way that allows us to be like, better suited for that particular ecology or social environment or whatever it is that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And our, uh, you know, our psychology, our brains are shaped by the particular tasks that we're learning as well. So, I mean, there's a huge literature on expertise and how learning musical instruments um, and learning multiple languages. Um, there's bi-directional feedback for these sorts of things. But the, the kinds of mechanisms that I think of as, you know, kind of core cognitive architecture are things like imitation, um, the observational learning. So human children are deeply interested in pretty much everything about other people, particularly interested in you know peers and parents and people that are you know locally very informative. Um, but children are motivated to acquire the toolkits of those around them. The languages you don't have to. Children don't require language instruction to learn a language. Right? They don't require any kind of reward to imitate. They are intrinsically motivated to become like those around them in a way that differentiates us from other animals. Right? That social motivation and aptitude for social learning 
is critical for understanding human cognition and culture. Right, so it sounds like our brains, and on this podcast, brains are something that we really like to talk about. But I love brains. Yes, brains are wonderful. Um, (laughs) But like our human brains are almost set up to be influenceable by things from the outside and set up almost to be able to be, would you say, zombified by? I think there's no question that that's true, right? So there are, there's trade-offs and vulnerabilities associated with any, any strategy um, or sort of any evolutionary adaptation. So social learning is tremendously powerful in that it allows children, well, it allows learners uh, of all ages to acquire information that they would not be able to learn through individual exploration. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of what we all know, Mm -hmm. we've learned through observing other people directly by reading the materials other people have produced. Mm -hmm. We are voracious consumers of the, uh, not just consumers, we are the inheritors of many, many, many generations of of previous um, innovations. So we, we, we accumulate these, these innovations and um, have access to that when we're navigating the world around us. So not only are our minds absolutely prepared to acquire information from others, to be interested in information from others, uh, we also have, of course, cultural transmission systems like literacy, technology, numeracy, that allow us to record and oral oh, traditions. Oral right? traditions Going back so long. Oral traditions, yeah. I think, are a beautiful example of the interaction of cognition and culture. They include a. Um, there are a lot of features of uh, oral narratives that um, make memory, um, are you know specifically attuned to the human mind and how human memory works, like repetition. For example, there's a lot of repetition. Um, there's a lot of circling back. Humans find narratives to, uh, to be especially compelling. We enjoy hearing them. Um, in fact, we, we package things in narratives where in, uh, that emphasize goal-directedness and intentionality and all the sorts of ways that human minds process information, even in cases where it, maybe it doesn't fit all that well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in um, describing like evolutionary theory, uh, we often fall into the trap of presenting it in a narrative format, which, of course, is engaging to humans who we're trying to influence, mm-hmm. but then also um, end it's up... what's sort of been criticized as like the just-so yeah, storytelling, right? Right. It yeah. also um, include information about uh, kind of goal-directedness um, and design. And I mean, humans think about goal-directedness and intentionality and design, and, and we make artifacts. Uh, we have intentions. You can't understand human psychology without understanding those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but one error that we make is overgeneralizing that to systems that are not um, not created by human minds, right. <laughs> like like the evolutionary process. So um, so our a lot of our cultural traditions are, of course, not accidentally um, very uh, attuned to the way our, they were designed to process information in the way human minds reason. Right. So the oral tradition, the repetition, the uh, kind of the narrative structure, uh, 
they, they build in um, kind of personal relationships and uh, all kinds of things that are intriguing to moral lessons to human minds. And that is a tremendously useful way to uh, increase interest, which is always critical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people often, I think, don't pay enough attention to what we, what we care about. There's lots of things we can do and that we can reason about, but we're more likely to do them if we care to, which is like, you right. think about the, the kind of motivation that a very young child has to imitate others. This, the fact that they are, they have all of this intrinsic motivation to do this means that they're doing it when they're doing it all the time. They're doing it when they're not being rewarded. They're doing it when their parents aren't looking, mm-hmm. they're doing it in their free time, they're spending a lot of their energy. So there's a lot that you can tell about a species looking at what they care about and how they spend their time when, um, in the case of humans, when no one is watching, right? Mm-hmm. When no one is monitoring, okay. that sort of thing. And kids spend a lot of time playing and imagining and telling stories and Absolutely. those kinds of things. Yeah, they yeah. enjoy the same Many of the same things that yeah. adults do. They are small adult, you know, small humans, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So my kids at the dinner table now, um, we try to eat all together, but we have to have rules about memes, like the memes, like the online memes, because there's, so there's three of them. They're 14, 12, and seven, and they will just start repeating the memes and they will just cycle. And sometimes I'll, like activate a meme that's, you know, longer than a few seconds long, and then they'll all be like saying it together. And this can go on like indefinitely if we don't intervene and like say, no, it's conversation. We have to have a conversation. But they're like brains are just taking this information. And then not only do they take it in, but then they want to repeat it. And then of course, when they're repeating it, they're reinforcing it in each other's brains. And so they're just these little like they're social beings that use language this is this is hardly unexpected and this is what their brains are for so they're just they're merely exercising what their brains are especially well equipped to not only enjoy but also to be good at yeah but i can't help but feel like as their parent as i'm watching this that they're getting hijacked right like (laughs) is it really like you know, I don't know, maybe maybe they're getting some information that's important for them for surviving as, you know, young adults in Tempe, Arizona by, you know, repeating these memes over and over again. But uh, I don't know. I think they're probably, um, you know, they're, they're building a particular sort of linguistic toolkit by doing this. But I, I think that the, the possibility of them being hijacked this is not mutually exclusive, right? Mm-hmm. It's very true that there are there are entire industries of marketers and advertisers and people and social media influencers. Just discovered that that's yeah. a term, influencers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, they there's a science to this, and they create material specifically to be maximally engaging, um, ma- maximally catchy, and that in doesn't sound that different from hijacking. That's exactly yeah. what I would argue marketers and advertisers want. And we often find our, you know, draw ourselves drawn to purchasing a particular product or um, 
developing a particular preference without any recognition that this was not our idea at all. Um, another thing that, that we're um, human children are, are especially bad at this, but even adults, we're not good at, at source monitoring. Um, by which you when, mean? By, by that I mean we're not good at keeping track of where we heard particular information. Not always. Uh-huh. Um, and, and obviously some types of information are more salient and the, the person you heard it from is more relevant. But we, I think this is part of the kind of cumulative nature of our culture and the way our brains process information. It's often not critical or even possible to remember the source of all this insight. Um, and that over time, we uh, internalize this as part of our own choice, um, our own preference, our, our own beliefs. idea. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So imitation allows us to acquire whatever cultural toolkits and skills, our practices are locally relevant. So we imitate what's around us and what's around us as a species varies as function of the historical period that we're living in, the particular region that we're, we're living in, the political circumstances, the, um, the economic history, the educational institutions we have access to, um, and thus this universal mechanism for cultural acquisition, which is you know, high-fidelity imitation, means that we acquire what is locally relevant. And that explains how, over time, our, um, our toolkits become more and more specialized uh, and can vary pretty dramatically between populations. So what children learn to do in, in Tempe is different than what children learn to do, to some extent. There's some mm-hmm. similarities. They all learn to, you know, do you kind of basic human things like have social relationships and speak languages and, and prepare food. Um, but what children are learning in Tempe and what they're learning in you know, Port Vila in Vanuatu are, are pretty different. Yeah, so you've done some experiments where you've like looked at differences in learning and how imitation differs and how people think differently about what happens. Would you, it's true. Would you talk about those a little bit? So we, we've done experiments using kind of child-friendly tasks, things like making necklaces. And we found that children everywhere, when they, a particular necklace, for example, is modeled, imitate that, that ne- particular necklace with pretty high fidelity. So, so they'll have see, somebody like, you like have an experiment where someone is making this necklace with these different beads, right. and then the kid has to do that same task where they're... That's right. Yeah. So they watch an adult make a yeah. necklace um, using particular beads, particular colors, in a particular order, and then they're given the same materials, and they're told, it's your turn. So the child can choose to make exactly the same necklace, assuming they remember it, because uh, they've just recently watched it. They can make a necklace that's a, a little bit similar, has some of the same colors, but is a little different, can make an entirely different necklace, uh, uh, or can make no necklace at all and do something else with the beads. So they're not directly told to imitate, although most children do. Right? Most children understand the implicit task demands of an adult modeling something in front of them yeah. uh, with the expectation that there's probably a reason the adult has chosen to do this. So um, most children everywhere, in fact, everywhere we've ever worked, imitate with pretty high fidelity in a context of this sort. So I think imitation is an, is absolutely a human universal. I think acquiring the toolkits characteristic of human populations without imitation would be 
it would be impossible to do this. Because imitation allows you to acquire information uh, and knowledge far beyond what you could discover independently through your own exploration, right? It's why I mean, imitating a recipe that someone else made, uh, if I follow each step in that recipe precisely, I can produce something far more delicious and special than if I went to the kitchen and just started throwing ingredients in a pan. Um, it's quite frightening to imagine what I would come up with. <laughs> There's some small chance it would be truly exceptional, but I wouldn't, wouldn't bet money on that. So imitation al allows children to participate in activities they otherwise would not have the knowledge to participate in, to acquire practices and abilities and toolkits they could never learn on their own. So it's not a surprise to me that children everywhere imitate with high fidelity. What I think has been really quite surprising in our recent research is how much variation there is between populations in what people think high fidelity imitation or conformity means about the abilities of different, um, of different people. So just for example, um, in, in Vanuatu, which is the Melanesian archipelago, when adults watch a young child imitate the behavior of somebody else with very high fidelity. Um, so they make the necklace. They so make the necklace exactly perfectly. Like exactly. The adult did. Um, and then watch a child make a quite different necklace after watching the adult make, um, make a particular one. They judge the child who made the necklace just like the adult as most intelligent um, as, as most well-behaved. And their justification for this is that this child clearly has an excellent brain and a very, uh, an excellent mind. Um, because to they're remember, keeping track of everything. Yeah, and, to yeah. remember exactly what that, um, what that person had, had, um, had created. And that the ability to reproduce that behavior requires an excellent memory, an excellent mind. So they're not giving explanations based on um, conformity or rule use per se, they're really drawing attention to the, the kind of cognitive psychological power of this child. Whereas in, in the U.S., in particular, Euro-American middle-class parents, um, when they see the same videos, they judge the child that made quite a different necklace um, as the most intelligent. So in fact, take behavioral variation as a sign of, of low conformity and associate that with creativity, with innovation, with, um, with a, a kind of a cognitive toolkit that allows, that allows a person to think outside the box. So there's this huge, um, in many ways, kind of fetishizing individualism. Even when that individualism is something as trivial as making a necklace just a little different than what was modeled. It's amazing how much people, you know, how much information they derive from very simple behavior. Just something as simple as whether the child made a necklace the same or not means different things in different populations, changes how people think about the intelligence of the child, of the behavior of the child. So just simple behaviors are psychologically consequential in powerful ways. You think that that has anything to do with like in Western, you know, 
middle-class Eurocentric kind of world, that's where the speed of cultural change is so fast. And like that, you know, is there like more of a sort of training of kids to participate in like the changing culture as opposed to places where like maybe traditions are stronger or there's less cultural change? I think that it's, um, this isn't a product of, or primarily a product of, of Western populations per se. I think it is a product of uh, competitive child-rearing environments. So in, I mean, so keep in mind in industrialized countries in throughout the world, in East and South Asia, for example, uh, you have tremendous technological and cultural change. You have technological and cultural change happening everywhere. But in industrialized countries, in this, there's some variation here, right? So you think of a country like Finland who has a um, much less competitive educational system than what you would find in the U.S. or in India, for that matter. Uh, parenting in your American middle-class context has become... A, and in many industrialized contexts, ranging from Austin to Shanghai to Beijing to um, you know, even places like Delhi and Rio de Janeiro, there are limited edu- uh, economic opportunities. And these economic opportunities are highly, highly competitive. And education is a conduit, it's a path, it's a gateway to acquiring an economically competitive skill set. So this is why parents down the road from from us in Austin are putting their children in gifted preschools and Mm -hmm. paying to go to private schools, to give uh, paying for private tutoring, to give their child every competitive advantage to outcompete other children, right? Education is set up in many countries to be competitive Mm -hmm. and thus Anything that differentiate, differentiates your child and the toolkit of your, you know, your child has access to from other children gives them a competitive mm-hmm. edge. So frankly, I think it has much more to do with being in a competitive child-rearing environment, in a schooling environment, um, which is a product of particular economies mm-hmm. and industrialization yeah. than in, in any mm-hmm. sort of Western cultural values per yeah. se. There's also like a little bit of a chicken and egg problem right because like in you know in the united states for example where individualism is more valued those things that make you stand out are maybe the things that are going to get you into that top tier college you want to go to while in some other you know countries having the top score on the exam because you studied for hours and hours every day is what will get you into the top school Right. So there might be some or some combination of both of those things. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So we've heard lots of stories of parents um, cheating systems to yeah. give their children competitive edges. And and, and there are also ways that, that children have unfair advantage, you know, quote unquote, unfair advantages in a variety of, of domains. So these are, you know, resources for special tutoring um, for special summer schools and special programs. And there's lots of examples of parents very predictably doing whatever they have access to, whatever they can to give their child an edge in a competitive environment. And we live in very 
competitive environments indeed. Uh, something to keep in mind is that these kinds of environments aren't necessarily very, uh, very good at promoting curiosity, discovery, innovation, creativity. Mm. When you have high stakes testing and you have uh, this very um, high expectation that you master a particular body of knowledge in order to perform very well in a test, this is a, you know, probably a pretty good indication of some types of intelligence, but it's not an indication of other types of intelligence, creative problem solving, for example, you know, flexibility in thought and all these sorts of things that are useful in the long run to educating individuals who will be innovative. A lot of our formal educational system isn't pr promoting those types of skills. Mm. Uh, and part of that is that I think there's a disconnect between the kinds of skills we want people to have, the kind of cognitive aptitudes we want people to have, and the educational bureaucracy, the educational institutions that we have built. Hmm. How can we make institutions you know, better at creating and cultivating people who are truly innovative? High stakes testing is definitely not consistent with that. So we are, we are giving, I think we're giving children mixed messages on that front, giving students mixed messages. So on the one hand, uh, you know, we, we fetishize particular sorts of creativity, innovation, individualism, but then put children in environments where they have to memorize vast, you know, bodies of knowledge and perform well on particular sorts of tasks. I mean, it's, it's why, you know, one of the, 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 maybe if not the strongest predictor of academic achievement is, you know, behavioral self-regulation. So why are children that do really well in executive functioning tasks and behavioral self-regulation tasks so much more likely to succeed academically? Because they can sit in a classroom and have their attention managed by somebody else and inhibit their impulses to do more interesting things for hours and hours and hours a day over the course of many, many, many years. You're saying they're good little zombies. They're good zombies. <laughs> they are. And this is, the, this is one of the, the problems with a one-size-fits-all educational mm -hmm. system because children who um, perhaps, and this is not to suggest that children who can't regulate their attention are all creative geniuses. I do not mean to suggest that. But our educational system definitely rewards particular cognitive aptitudes and doesn't encourage mm -hmm. others. Yeah. Right. So if you give every child 45 minutes of particular content, um, totally independent of what their actual interests are, what they're curious about, what they're working on. Um, there's very little kind of individualization mm -hmm. in our educational system. And so this means this kind of one size fits all benefits some children more mm -hmm. than others. Mm -hmm. So children that can fit that mold are going to do better in terms of, and by better, I mean, they're going to perform better on exams. They're going to do better on paper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, children who are less able to do this uh, don't excel mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. And all children would be more, um, would be more curious if they had, if the educational system was more responsive to their interests. Yeah. yeah. True children, true adults. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to kind of think of this, like, 
you know, tongue-in-cheek, like, good little zombie, right? Like, a kid who can sit there and, like, learn all the stuff and follow what the teacher wants them to attend to and assimilate all of that. Like, they're actually... good training for the formal job sector, isn't it? Yeah, but, but they're also, like, potentially really good at being able to integrate all of this past knowledge that has been accumulated, right? And so they may be in a good position then to build on that further and to innovate, but only if after they have acquired all of this and sat there and been a good zombie for however many years of education they go through, then to be able to turn around and say, okay, well, now what are the dimensions in which this can vary without it being catastrophic? And how, what should I test? And also feeling like it's okay to try it differently and it's okay to fail without that being a disaster. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all about match with the toolkit you are, that you need to master. So there was a time, and this is true in, in some parts of the world to this day, where just being literate gave you a huge competitive advantage over, over other people. Um, or, you know, just having a particular kind of rudimentary skill set that you could acquire through apprenticeship with um, learning from a more skilled person. You could, you could acquire through practice, through, um, in some cases, even individual exploration and initiative. In highly you know, industrialized, technologically complex economies that are spreading throughout the world, reached nearly every corner of the globe at this point, there's so much specialization um, and so much so much education required to master particular sorts of of, domains of expertise that you need years and years of zombification, Hmm. years and years of learning and complex bodies of knowledge, um, memorizing information, processing information that has been accumulated over time, resynthesizing it. I mean, most innovation is recombining information and insights in new and creative ways. So there's very little innovation that is truly novel, sort of from the bottom up. Um, it's incremental. It's um, recombination. Uh, and it's it's this accumulation. Also why oftentimes like there will be scientific discoveries that are essentially made by people who don't even interact with each other, Absolutely. right? Because they're just taking the things around, they're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. That's and, right. Yeah. Right. So often innovation comes from stumbling across a, you know, a sort of insight from an unexpected place or putting, you know, new putting two ideas together in ways that they've never been um, kind of considered before, or drawing parallels between multicellular collaboration and collaboration with humans, right? So, so those sorts of comparisons and kind of synthesis of, of different bodies of knowledge is where is why interdisciplinary research is so powerful. Um, it's one of the reasons that I do interdisciplinary research myself is you can, you can take insights from another discipline and apply them in ways that are generative and really powerful. So there, so there is enormous value in acquiring large, complex bodies of knowledge, mastering them in order to be able to to have the kind of flexibility and kind of cognitive dexterity to 
combine them in, in new and interesting ways. Um, and, and so, so, you know, innovation is, is more than just doing something different. Uh, Anyone can do, any of us can do a million things that are different or novel and entirely useless um, are not better than what exists already and that no one would, would want to, to practice or acquire um, because they're clearly useless and in some cases much worse yeah. <laughs> than what we already have. So it's rare that, that anyone, even experts, come up with something truly new, truly better, and so much newer and better that other people are willing to take on that practice and transmit it to others that we're, we're pretty selective in what we choose to And that was just the definition of innovation. Absolutely. Day. Has to be new, has to be better, and has to be transmitted to others. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of, of, of examples of the course of our, kind of the evolution of human culture, of new ideas that were better at one point, were transmitted um, you know, widely, and then were replaced by something that's so there's all cultures always moving. We're always changing. We're always coming up with, um, with new and better and different solutions, uh, which is not to suggest that culture, cultural technological complexity, for example, always moves in one direction. It can increase. It can also decrease over time um, as a function of variety of you know, population size and ecological factors and, and lots of, of other things. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's like you need enough brains around to be keeping the information you need a critical brain mass absolutely (laughs) brain mass yeah (laughs) and you need a technological repository Mm -hmm. uh, in order to store all of this insight which is what you know books do for us and computers do for us and you think about a lot of our technology it's really about storing information and why do humans love technology so much well one because it gives us access to information and it connects us to others Mm -hmm. our two probably favorite things (laughs) information and other humans (laughs) yeah yeah well there's this like deep irony that youtube probably has all the how-to videos that you would need in order to figure out how to survive the zombie apocalypse but in the zombie apocalypse like the youtube servers would be down so yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> I am, I was reading a book by Michael Pollan recently um, about kind of food culture. And he, he actually writes a lot about innovation in the space of food preparation and cooking. It's really, it's quite fascinating. But he gives this example of um, some foraging that he was doing. So he was attempting to, well, he's for, trying to forage for mushrooms. And he found Very himself special. in a... Mushrooms. Very special mushrooms. <laughs> and he found himself in a forest, which was reasonably unfamiliar. Forests are pretty unfamiliar to a lot of industrialized populations. And he had a book with him, a guidebook to mushroom foraging, and was looking at the a picture of an edible mushroom and comparing it to the mushroom he had in his hands. And it looked, you know, they looked reasonably similar. However, the stakes are pretty high here because it yeah. also looked kind of similar to a highly toxic mushroom. Yeah. And he sat there comparing and ultimately didn't have the nerve to, to eat the mushroom, with, yeah. even with that book. Right. And he, only, um, he was only willing to consume the mushroom 
after he went to a mushroom expert who vouched for that mushroom himself. So that's, and this is another um, really critical thing to understand about how humans make decisions and who they trust and why they trust. We do care about information in the form of these, you know, you know, cultural transmission systems and you know, books and are one example of that. But we often are only truly persuaded by an a person, opinion. an actual brain, and their actual <laughs> testimony about yeah. whether something is is safe or not. And we see so many different examples of that in the in everything from, um, you know, sort of the sorts of things that shape truly shape our opinions like YouTube. Um, you know, why, why are, why is YouTube so powerful is it's almost always the testimony of, of people. Um, why do we, uh, why are we so swayed by firsthand testimony? Uh, despite knowing how fallible human memory is, the certainty with which someone gives testimony is very persuasive, more persuasive, unfortunately, than large bodies of statistical information uh, often showing quite different <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, different truths, uh, and, and yet we're persuaded by other minds. Uh, and social media, of course, is keenly aware of this. This is why information is presented by quote-unquote influencers, um, mm-hmm. and we're not just downloading graphs right. uh, of you know, empirical studies. I mean, some of us are doing that, <laughs> but, but perhaps <laughs> not as many of us as we would like. Yeah. Well, so you're... The, Something that you said about interdisciplinary work a couple minutes ago made me think about, like, I had this image in my head as we've been talking about, like, you know, the body of human knowledge as this, like, unitary thing that's, like, growing with, like, as we learn more about how the world works and all that. But I realized it actually is a bunch of, like, tangled masses, some of which don't really connect to each other, and that a lot of the sort of interdisciplinary innovations are coming because you're like connecting these masses that were not otherwise connected. And I don't know, it just makes me wonder about like, how are we, like, is there an intentional process at this, at like a really high level of us humans about like, how do we increase our knowledge about the world or are we just all zombified by the institutions that we're in, in the departments that we're in, in the sub-communities that we're in where like some, you know, some criterion is considered the criterion of success in that. And are we like losing sight of, well, how do we actually take all these brains that are in all these buildings that are processing all this information and connect them together in a way that we can, better understand our world. Yeah. I think the the human problem is, or human priority, is how do I effectively manage in the local ecology that I'm part of? Um, How do I manage the relationships that I am in? How do I succeed in that context? How do I acquire a cultural repertoire that will make me locally successful? That is our kind of square our home base that's that's mm-hmm. the kind of ground zero that's where we're operating uh, we also have the capacity to synthesize large bodies of knowledge and now we have all of these cultural innovations that allow us to learn about other populations to learn about their ideas to build upon them and combine them in ways in, in new and exciting ways 
we have cultural institutions that organize large groups of, of people, each with individual minds and individual um, strengths into larger scale cooperation and, and cooperation that is directed towards solving large scale human problems. So we're part of a of highly complex cultural institutions that allow for collective problem solving at epic, epic scales. But the, the complexity transcends the abilities of individual minds. It's why you and I can effectively use a smartphone, uh, and as can your, you know, your ch you know, young child. But there's probably not one human on the planet who understands every electronic component of an iPhone or could create one independently from scratch. So our expertise and our knowledge is so widely distributed. It's way beyond the abilities of an individual brain. Yeah. We're becoming more and more and more and more specialized. The, the toolkits that you and I have make us effective at particular sorts of things. But we are, we are so specialized, in fact, I mean, there's a trade-off that if you put either one of us on a remote island um, without any of our you know, fancy technological cultural tools, um, shouldn't speak for you, but I'm not well-versed in agriculture, in um, home preparation not really sure how to uh, weave together palm fronds in order to protect us from the rain. I think it's very possible um, that we would have a lot of difficulty doing even the most basic subsistence tasks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. our hyper-specialization of particular highly technical knowledge toolkits is a good match for the environment that we currently are living in, which by the way is historically recent and globally unrepresentative. So uh, I mean, had we lived even a hundred, you know, if we were born a hundred years, 50 years, 20 years previously, we would have really different toolkits. And, and so this, the pace at which economies and, you know, sort of cultural bodies of knowledge are changing far surpasses our ability, I think, to, to um, wrap our brains, our individual brains yeah. around. Collect we're struggling to wrap our collective brains yeah. <laughs> around it. I think wrapping our individual minds around this is is a very challenging, yeah. probably impossible thing to do. You know, I think, though, if we were dropped on a desert island or the zombie apocalypse happened, like, I think we would quickly reevaluate our priorities and reassess how we're, like, allocating our resources. We would. And be like, you know what? Maybe that paper doesn't need to get turned in anymore. <laughs> I would only, I would only hope we would have a sense. How long, how long do you sense think to adapt? It would take for academia to like be like, yeah, we're just we're not gonna we're not gonna worry about publishing papers anymore. We're gonna try to deal with the zombie apocalypse. I think we would we would adapt as soon as we realized that we were uh, on the board, like verge of starvation, really quickly. So those basic human needs have a way of re <laughs> recalibrating our priorities, but it would become evident incredibly quickly how much we rely on the labor and the expertise and the services of others. Right. 
Uh, this is why I have, you know, have a conversation with a seven or eight year old in, in Austin, who's quite horrified to find out that the chicken strips that she's been eating are made of chicken flesh or chicken meat. Right. Um, they're not in the shape of a chicken. <laughs> yeah. They come in this package yeah. uh, that you open and pop into a device which magically beams, you know, these heat waves yeah. and produce this product. Right. Uh, there's so much of the technological environments that we live in are entirely opaque to us. Some of the chicken strips don't have much chicken in them. To be fair, that's yeah. true. It's very possible there could be some synthetic <laughs> soy protein. <laughs> But we're so disconnected from, from so much of basic subsistence. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and, and we, we outsource this. Uh, the, this makes us more reliant on other brains than ever before in a very, um, in a very literal way. Yeah. But it's interesting because in a way we can, like, almost the way that markets are set up, it's in a way that allows us to ignore just how dependent on others we are, right? Because you have substitutability, right? Like, it, okay, if um, this pencil maker stopped making pencils, there'd still be another pencil maker I could get a pencil from. Sure. Um, and, you know, oh, if the you know this farm shuts down, there's another farm sure. where I could get food sure. from. And so it really hides just how interdependent we are because on a moment to moment basis we feel like oh no i'm super independent because i go to the grocery store and (laughs) buy my groceries like i'm not relying on anybody i'm buying it myself right (laughs) right but you are in fact deeply reliant on particular trade policies and and you know market supply and demand and the continued employment you know your personal employment and all sorts of resources that we yeah. we take for granted until they're they're no longer there. Yeah, um, it's and almost, it's almost like we are zombified to feel like we are not actually part of a system that yeah. is influencing us. It's like we're zombified to feel not zombified when we actually are. Are right, and the most <laughs> effective zombification feels like our choice. Yeah. So this is a, right. a particular sort of evil genius uh-huh. at work. Yeah. Evil, good, but, both. But it's right? also like, I mean, if we as humans are inherently about this social influence and social transmission and division of labor and like ability to do all of this, and yes. it's fundamental to being human that we are zombifiable and it's not always a bad thing or not necessarily a bad thing. I, w- I think it's we are zombified by design, that we're zombified from birth. Uh, This is responsible for our technological and cultural prowess, our success as a species in many ways, but also opens us up to exploitation, um, to particular, to being misled, to being cheated, to being manipulated. Mm -hmm. So it is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Are there like particular kinds of manipulation that are that we're particularly vulnerable to because of this propensity for cultural learning that's part of our evolutionary makeup? Yeah. I mean, we, we have a limited capacity to to process information. 
Um, and, and we are currently bombarded with more information than, than any individual mind could possibly comprehend or synthesize. And it's also very difficult to evaluate the uh, authenticity, um, quality <laughs> of information that we're being presented Talking with. about like social media. Absolutely. Yeah. All the media we have access to, we are, we are really at the mercy of the institutions and organizations and individuals that collect and synthesize and present that information. Uh, and the organizations that are presenting this information have a lot of vested interest to shape opinions in particular sorts of ways. A lot of this is not being regulated really at all. So this means that the consumer of information, you know, you and I are vulnerable. So like when you go on social media, you're talking about like the kinds of information that people get when they just Absolutely. Like go on to and in, yeah. in, in science, at least at its best in the way that it's supposed to operate, we have lots of checks on the process by which we produce information. We have things like peer review, we have um, uh, you know, ethical oversight, uh, we have you know, institutions that, um, that regulate mm -hmm. and check right. the information that we produce. It's not perfect. And there's but a it's, whole like training and hypothesis absolutely. testing, right? And there's, and there's, using there's controls and training, all, yeah. There's evaluation. Yeah. Um, there's, of course, the scientific method that allows other scientists to, um, to use the same methods um, and to check for reliability, reproducibility, generalizability. So we, we actually have a lot of mechanisms to control the quality of information. Um, and to get better, right? And there's lots of examples in science that are um, increasing the transparency, the openness, the access to information, the reproducibility of our, our process. You don't see a lot of parallels to that in other spaces of human cultural technologies hmm. where information is, um, you know, for example, in journalism. Sure, there are, it's, of course there are some standards in journalistic practice, uh, but there's not a lot of oversight and enforcement of those practices. And so you know, people often assume that the information that they're being, um, that's being transmitted is true checked, because is it's true, yeah. is um, that there's some sort of an evaluative process going on there. But we see lots of examples with, I think, increasing frequency of just a complete lack of any sort of regulation any kind of quality control, any check. And social media, you don't even have to go, go through formal journalistic channels at all anymore. I mean, a lot of people will get information from entirely unregulated sources where you and I could both create a YouTube channel and dedicate our energies full time to flat earth theories. By the way, flat earth theories, they're back. Turns out this is a whole movement yeah. of people who think the earth is flat. And and there are YouTube channels dedicated yeah. to this. I'm not well, suggesting this is a wildly popular idea, but it's still alarming that you could you could truly introduce any sort of idea yeah. um, and, and have yeah, the platform yeah, to do it. Of that one though is that it is like based on the idea that you should only use information that you can gather with your own senses. Fascinating. Yes. 
in many ways, I think this is a reaction to the increasing opacity of technological insight. Oh, that's so, really so, interesting. Yeah, so, so yeah. much of what we know about the world, we have to take on faith. So things like, you know, the, the, the intricacies of how vaccines work or any sort of complex technology works. Most individual minds and brains don't have access to those details. They don't have the expertise to evaluate that information. Mm -hmm. So we rely on others, yeah. other you know, scientists and doctors and, and other kind of cultural experts to translate that information for us. There's a lot of trust associated with that. And it's increasingly true that we are, we are, we rely on others for almost everything, for the food that we eat, for the artifacts that we use to prepare food, to deliver food to us, uh, the cars that we drive, um, we purchase from others. We increasingly can't do even the most basic repairs mm -hmm. on our cars or our appliances, our But if you um, look it up refrigerators, YouTube, sometimes you can... <laughs> you might be able to troubleshoot with YouTube. You yeah. also might do more electronic That's damage true. than you started with and have to pay several thousand yeah. dollars to a technician to and come out sure and repair. turn off the circuit breaker first. Absolutely. <laughs> so just, you know, we are, we are increasingly fully reliant yeah. on other experts and to manage all of our artifacts and all of our technological yeah. gadgets, which are supposed to make life easier, or at least that's what we're, you know, that's what you're sold, but introduce complexities um, and frustrations beyond anything we've even, you know, ever had to deal with, yeah. like sitting on the phone with a customer service agent, troubleshooting problems with your ice maker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> For example. Right. And just as yeah. one simple example, yeah. we are now, uh, we are beholden yeah. to all of these fancy technologies and to other people who have expertise we'll never have. Yeah. I think actually, like if we apply it to science and some of the kind of anti-science stuff that's happening sure. now, sure. that there is some sort of process that's going on now that's almost like sowing the seeds of mistrust in other people's brains. Sure. Like, in, you know, like, well, what, what is the, you know, why they want you to believe this and this, you know, so it's almost like this idea that, oh, maybe you're being manipulated by this information. So it's almost like the, like, people are feeling like there is some breakdown of this, like, generalized trust in other people's brains, right? That, like, the knowledge and information that's out there is true or it's in your best interest to follow it and like when there starts to be that that breakdown of like that trust in other people's brains then I mean that can yeah. actually compromise our ability to even accumulate cultural knowledge right like if sure. we don't if people don't trust that the body of knowledge that's there is a true or be like in their best interests like if there's some if they suspect that there's some other intentions behind it sure. that and there not. often are yeah so we, we we're operating in a highly competitive information marketplace it, the, the idea that there is this highly centralized authority that is shaping human progress to move in particular directions this is misguided sure are there some high level initiatives to solve particular sorts of problems that humans face yeah there we, i can think of lots of examples of that but the truth is 
the information is managed by people who have lots of competing interests. Often those interests are, are not yours. So people have every right to be skeptical of who is manipulating and producing information. Zombification is a highly competitive process. There's a lot of different organizations looking to organizations and individuals and corporations looking to zombify us. Yeah. So this is highly competitive. And uh, the, the problem is when that skepticism is taken to a place that is post-truth, where nothing is knowable, where, um, where expertise loses all value, uh, where there's where ex- expertise and um, education and experience are are, are undervalued yeah. and sort of lose their uh, their weightiness from a, a kind of a knowledge and expertise perspective that yeah. that's the space that worries me because the kind of apex of human culture is science, is kind of cultural toolkits and, um, and technologies that can be used for tremendously positive ends. They can also be used for tremendously negative ends. Mm-hmm. But to lose all capacity to evaluate the expertise and the quality of information is, is frightening. And, and this is why you have, yeah. you have influencers on YouTube advocating uh, gluten-free diets as cures for autism. Right? I mean, this, you, you know, no need, no expectation that you have any training, mm-hmm. any expertise, any actual knowledge, mm-hmm. any knowledge of science, um, any medical knowledge whatsoever, mm-hmm. and any Joe on the street mm-hmm. can have a following. And this is a kind of unprecedented, and, yeah. and social media gives you unprecedented access to that sort of a platform. Yeah, well, and if there's no way to evaluate what knowledge should be built on, then yeah. in a way we kind of lose something really fundamental to being human, right? If our ability to imitate and therefore you know, pass on knowledge to future generations is an important part of what makes us human. Yeah, absolutely then we're kind of losing our humanity in the process. I think we're outsourcing some of it. Mm-hmm. So I think our humanity is is still there. It is just being deployed to ends that are different. Some, some In some ways are the same. So we still have the same sort of interests in that we're interested in artifacts and people and particular sorts of information. So we're still curious about all these sorts of things. But our access and the accessibility to information has changed pretty dramatically, which I think opens us up to more widespread zombification than, mm-hmm. than ever before. We're, we've, we've always been zombies. There's never been a point <laughs> in which we were not, we're zombies from you know, utero. Mm-hmm. There's just larger numbers of human brains and um, sort of greater access to those brains than ever before. It's really what media has allowed for, yeah. is, is access to brains. Right, and you also have like a, a fewer number of individuals that are having wide, more widespread Absolutely. effects, right? Individuals Absolutely. and corporations that right. know, have access. Have access and, and have, um, are able to influence 
in ways that people don't recognize. So there's, it's because it's, you, you access information online, it's not clear always yeah. who's pulling the strings and who has access to that information and um, what their intentions are. So there's, there often is very little information about who's controlling information, how to evaluate it, how to prioritize what's valuable and what's not, what's credible and what's not. Um, and as I mentioned, there's, there's only no regulation of that information yeah. at all currently. A mismatch mm-hmm. between how fast technology is changing and how slowly our institutions that are designed to regulate it um, yeah. are changing. So um, it seems like a good time life. to talk about the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so, the apocalypse is now. <laughs> so, so if we take like this you know, ability that humans have to imitate others, to take cultural information, to bring it into their brains, to pass it along to other brains, and we just ramp it up to show that it's even more intense. Like, where does that leave us? Like, where, like, you know, what is the zombie apocalypse of human cultural information transmission? I I think the zombie apocalypse doesn't look like the horror movies that we associate zombies with. I think that zombification is, is something as relatable and as accessible as large numbers of people sitting in the same room, all on little mind control devices, otherwise known as smartphones. <laughs> so we're all, we already have the technological access. We're already being controlled by institutions that are designed to shape our thoughts, minds, beliefs, opinions, preferences. We already have, the, the technology already exists. We're already interacting with the technology that allows this to happen en masse. So we're already there and our, we are not the product of our own individual, not exclusively the product of our own individual volitions and preferences, that we are a product of our environments. We all are just by design, by necessity, and we always have been. Uh, and this new era just increases the scale huh. so and the coordination of minds over large geographical spaces. Wow. So it sounds almost like we are both willingly and unwittingly being zombified by all of these forces. Like we're allowing it to happen to ourselves. Absolutely. But we also enjoying don't it. realize that it's happening. Yes, absolutely. And the best, the, the most effective zombification feels like individual choice. Um, and and we're we're being zombified by uh, by institutions that present information in ways that we like that we find accessible is tailored to our interests right is provides information about others and and commodities that we want to purchase so all of this is is really kind of exquisitely designed with the human mind in mind. Mm. So what do we do about? Can is there anything we can do to? prevent the I'm not sure it's all I'm not sure it's all bad I think that the that what we can do is get educated about what the what's happening so who is presenting information to us how that information is being used I think that it's often we're not informed about how our information is being shared about 
why the information that we are processing is being presented in particular ways, what the underlying motivations of people who process and disseminate information, what those motivations are. Uh, so becoming more educated about a more educated consumer of information uh, and, and also getting more active in supporting regulatory efforts to reduce the transmission of fake news, um, of intentionally inaccurate and misleading information. We need much more regulation on a kind of institutional level, governmental level, as well as just greater awareness as consumers of information about how our brains are being zombified and how that information is, is being used. So we can make informed and educated choices about what we want to share, how we want to process information, how to seek out more accurate information. All of those sorts of things, I think, will will make us um, make us better zombies, <laughs> or yeah, make us uh, more attentive. Yeah, is, I guess that that's the goal, right? It's like we're not gonna become not zombies because being zombifiable is inherent to being human. Human, but we could be a little bit more intentional about the forces that we are exposing Absolutely. ourselves to, and what, and less open to exploitation by. Yeah other zombies. Right. Yeah. Well, so for, you know, as an individual, like trying to manage the onslaught of cultural information that yeah. we have now, like, are, is there any advice that you would give to people just as, you know, users of smartphones and social media and sure. you know, all these wonderful technological innovations that can help us, but also sometimes hijack us? I think the more you know about the human mind, the more effectively you can manage it, that the more you understand about the sorts of things that influence your decision-making process and your priorities and the sorts of things that sway opinions, uh, the more power you have to seek out the kind of information required to make better decisions. Uh, and, and, and also recognizing that the, the kinds of technologies that you have access to are, are interesting to us the way that brownies are delicious to us. We often want information um, that is kind of socially interesting and informative in, in ways that are interesting to the human mind, but not that helpful. So a lot of the information that we are consuming, this is why we, for some reason, care about the Kardashians. Um, I don't know if we care about them, but we certainly know a lot about them, whether we want to or not. Um, the, the reason this information is, is out there is that it's useful to particular sorts of people to sell particular sorts of, of products. And the more we know about the information being presented to us and how that information is, is being used, the more we can opt out of it. Right. Right? So it's, it's about really becoming a better, smarter consumer of information. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the best advice that I can give. And, and, mm-hmm. and recognizing that social media is addictive the way that junk food is addictive. It yeah. is absolutely, absolutely addictive and should be managed in the ways that all addictive substances uh, and information <laughs> are in, in moderation yeah. and, and recognizing that this information is both just because it's attractive and interesting doesn't mean that it's valuable, good or useful. Right, it's not necessarily going to help you accomplish your own goals. That's exactly right. Just because yeah. something is intriguing doesn't mean that it's helpful. Yeah. And we do have 
uh, we're not only zombies, right? We do have the, this extraordinarily powerful, um, flexible cognitive machinery that we have some volitional control over um, and can make better decisions with more information. We can make that, we have that choice yeah. to make those decisions. We don't have to choose to be on the smartphone all the time, but we should modify our environments so as to control our desires and appetites and addictions yeah. uh, accordingly. Right. And the more we know about human nature and how our Absolutely. minds work and what our vulnerabilities are, the better we will be able to modulate that Manage. zombification. So That's that exactly right. So we're only getting zombified by the things that maybe do have aligned interests with us and not as much by the things that are just trying to exploit us. That's right. That's right. We cannot eat brownies every meal of the day, despite how delicious they are. We cannot use smartphones um, every hour of the day to manage our time and interests, uh, because these what these these devices do is they allow other people to manage our our attention and our interests. And I think part of the path forward is taking some of that power and choice back. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christine, thank you so much. You are for most welcome. Your awesome brain most welcome. with all of us today. <laughs> thank you. And if the whole world says that we're crazy. is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and President's Office at ASU, and also the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Also special thanks to all the brains that help make this podcast. Tal Rom, who does our sound, Neil Smith, who does our illustrations, and Lemmy, the creator of our theme song, Psychological. Also special thanks to the Z-Team. You can follow us on social media. We are Zombified Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Zombified Podcast on Facebook. You can also find us on our website, zombified.org. You can support us on Patreon by becoming a patron. Um, we're an all-educational uh, podcast. We have no ads, so your support is greatly appreciated. Um, you can also buy our merchandise on our website and support us that way. We have t-shirts and stickers available. I share my brains at the end of each episode, and today I have on offer a little story from my um, earlier life. So in my 20s, I dated a guy who 
uh, believed in what most people would say are conspiracy theories. And we, we got along quite well. He was very smart, but didn't have much, by the way, of formal education. And you know, looking back at it, I think that maybe that combination actually of sort of being really smart and being skeptical, um, but not having had a lot of opportunity for formal education might have made him kind of more vulnerable to getting sucked into uh, believing things that were not based on scientific evidence. And I realized that we had very, very different underlying beliefs, not just about the world, but also about how you gain knowledge about the world and how you learn about the world. So let me give you a little anecdote to explain. So we uh, were sitting in a bar and having a chat about one of the conspiracy theories that we disagreed about. I don't remember which one now. And at some point he decided to bring into the conversation some of the other folks that were sitting nearby us at the bar. And over the course of 15 or, or 20 minutes, um, he managed to convince them of his view. Uh, and I don't know if that's because his argument was better or um, more intuitively appealing, or perhaps he was just a little bit more um, intimidating in that context, being six foot four and well built next to me, you know, five foot seven academic. Um, but suffice to say, he, he convinced them. And then he turned back to me to argue that he was right on the basis of the fact that he was able to convince these people at the bar that he was right. And that fact of him actually believing that he was right because he was able to convince others, uh, that is something that has just stuck with me since then. Now, suffice to say, it didn't work out <laughs> with us. Um, it was sort of a turning point for me, actually, in, in realizing that um, our uh, beliefs about uh, how you gain knowledge about the world were sufficiently different that we weren't really going to be able to get along. Um, but it, it stuck with me. And I think about it sometimes when I look at what is happening in social media and with the spread of, you know, sometimes blatantly false information um, and the, the way that people often take um, other people's beliefs as a, uh, an indication that those beliefs must be right. And, 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 it, and it worries me because uh, once if one starts using this criterion that, you know, information is true, if other people can be convinced of it, um, then really that makes it so people can argue for anything just on the basis of other people being convincible. 
And, you know, once we take away any standards of evidence or standards of, you know, how that information fits with the rest of the knowledge that we have about how the world works, um, it just makes it possible for um, anybody to put out any information that could potentially, um, you know, work towards their own interests and uh, against the interests of a broader population or even against the interests of the person who is accepting that information. So, so it worries me. Um, but it's also, um, I've found it really helpful to know and to remind myself that not, not everybody has the same, uh, standards of evidence for accepting something as true that for, for some people like this ex-boyfriend of mine, um, just, being able to convince others that you're right um, was sufficient um, to make him think that he indeed knew the truth. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.